this is Bradley. Hey, Bradley. This is uh, David. How you doing? Hey, David. Good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, thank you for agreeing to talk to me. This is a fascinating conversation. I just started, uh, you know, looking into it more deeply recently, but fascinating corner of American history. Um, and one thing that I really liked about your book was that it, you know, uh, not only that, but that it relates to current, you know, it relates to, to issues today, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, in a growing sense, I think. Yes, that's that's uh, that's right. Yeah, and you know, it's gotten a, a lot of attention the past couple of years. You know, Rachel Maddow's podcast on this has really opened up the discussion, and I, you know, I want to hope that some of the work that I've done and public speaking I've done too is kind of put on people's radar. But I agree, it's still kind of an underexplored area. Yeah, no, and you're right; it is getting more attention for that reason. So, um, yeah, let's uh, dive in. Uh, so I don't uh, end up taking up too much of your time, but um, <laughs> yeah, no um, I guess fr uh, first question is uh, how did the American public generally perceive Nazism at, uh, let's say, in the, you know, in the 1930s uh, leading up to the war? And what was the general sentiment at that time? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's actually not an easy one to answer. So this is the era, we should say, at, at the start, where public opinion polling is really kind of in its infancy. So we have the Gallup poll that correctly predicts the 1936 election, uh, um, but there's other polls, the Reader's Digest poll that doesn't. We have polls through magazines like Fortune that are of you know, some validity, but it's kind of tough to get a, a scientific sense of public opinion in the way that we would expect today. But that being said, I mean, polling is pretty consistent throughout this era that Americans do not overall approve of Hitler's actions, especially towards uh, towards Jews um, in Nazi Germany. But that being said, the American public isn't sure what to do about that. So public opinion is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly against any kind of military intervention in Europe after the war begins. It is very skeptical of, of the anti-Nazi boycott movement, which was a consumer-led movement. Um, and, and very reluctant for the Roosevelt administration to do anything that could be perceived as international aggression and could lead to the U.S. getting involved in another war. Um, part of that is, that's kind of interesting as well is that public opinion was very much skeptical of America's involvement in World War I. Um, Americans overwhelmingly thought that that war had been a mistake, that it had been fought for European empires rather than American national security interests. And as a result, there was a, a lot of hostility. So um, the other thing we should keep in mind is that this is the era right after the first Red Scare. So the, the fear of communism is, is very much apparent in Americans' minds. And there's a poll I cite in the book. I'm, I'm, you can easily find it in there. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there's a poll that says, you know, if you had to live under a dictatorship, would you want to live in, in Stalin's Russia or Hitler's Germany? Um, and about a third of the respondents say, you know, I don't know. But then of, of the remaining ones, um, more would actually prefer to live in Hitler's Germany than Stalin's Russia or Stalin's Soviet Union. So, you know, interestingly mixed views in this period. Um, you know, if I had to summarize it, it's, you know, not comfortable with what Hitler's doing in Germany, definitely don't want to do anything about it, and, and certainly don't want to be involved in the war. Okay. So how do, you, how do we square that with the idea that there was, you know, rising and somewhat widespread anti-Semitism? Or was it not that widespread? Was it like a smaller a minority of really active uh individuals or was it or you know like a low percentage but growing from a low number or was it rampant i mean it was yeah. or, or was it more the case that the, the majority of americans opposed anti-semitism but you but you had fairly widespread uh, anti-semitism among a minority i i think it's it's closest to the latter i mean i think you you know anti-semitism was was very widespread um in this period you know and, and we see this kind of being resurgent in our own time right i mean there's anti-Semitism is unfortunately a, a feature of Western, you know, Western society, right? I mean, it's kind of baked into the, the DNA of, of the West to some extent. Um, and so, you know, public opinion polling in this period does show that there's a, a lot of what we would consider anti-Semitism that's just latent in society. But at the same time, you know, that the fact that people have negative views towards the Jews doesn't mean that they would endorse, you know, a pogrom, you know, in the United States against them or the types of violence that increasingly is seen in, in Hitler's Germany. So there, there is disturbing polling that says, you know, I think it's 1940 or so, about 10 percent of Americans want the country's Jewish population, you know, to be resettled somewhere peaceably, right? But, you know, that, that's a tiny minority, and there's a tiny minority of people that say they support Hitler's treatment of, of the Jews. But I think, you know, anti-Semitism along with other racial issues are 
a deep-seated facet of American society. And, and the Nazis understood this. They directed their propagandists to, to push on, especially anti-Semitism, as a lever to mobilize public opinion in directions they thought would be favorable to them. Um, and, and Americans did respond to that, um, you know, unfortunately. And we see this later on. I mean, the Soviet Union is very good at trying to push on this during the Cold War period with sort of the civil rights movement and racial, racial tensions in slightly different ways. Um, but, you know, this is an underlying fault line in American society, and, and the Nazis tried to exacerbate it. Mm. Okay, so then, uh, and this is something that you discuss at length in chapters one and two, uh, but uh, what were the main American groups that supported Nazism, and uh, what was the extent of their influence? You talk about the Bund, you talk about the Silver sure. Shirts, so uh, if you could sort of describe who they were. Yeah, absolutely. So the German-American Bund is, is probably the most visible uh, pro-Nazi group in this period. It's an it's a organization that has somewhere between 50 and 150,000 members, which obviously is a pretty big gap. Uh, the reason for that is that later on they destroyed their membership roles um, for, to try to protect their members from um, the repercussions of their actions. But um, it was also a, an organization that required paid membership, and so people were members for periods of times and dropped out during the, during the Great Depression years and things like that. But it's a pretty big organization, and, and certainly it was regionally um, very visible in the upper Midwest, New York City area, and sort of Pacific Northwest and, and in California, not, not so visible elsewhere. Um, but the Bund presented itself as a German-American cultural organization, uh, the idea being that you could – um, you know, join this organization and have your kids learn German and drink German beer and, you know, have a good time with, with other German-Americans. Um, and that kind of belies the membership as well. Most of the Boone's membership was um, people who had immigrated to the United States in the 1920s after World War I, um, some of whom saw themselves as, as actually refugees from the, the liberalism of, of the Weimar Republic. Uh, and indeed, the, the Boone's leader, a man named Fritz Kuhn, uh, claimed to have been an, an old fighter with the Nazi party and claimed to have um, been involved with the Nazi movement sort of in, in the early 1920s, in fact. So so this organization really grew out of the upper Midwest. Fritz Kuhn became its leader in 1936, its uh, first leader. Um, he set, made, moved the headquarters to actually New York City, to Manhattan, um, and began to build this sort of nationwide organization that, that very much looked like Nazism had uniforms, there were marches, there were salutes, they even had children's summer camps. Uh, it was really a, an attempt to emulate what was going on in Germany. And of course, mm -hmm. I noticed on your blog you mentioned the 1939 mass rally at Madison Square Garden. I mean, that becomes this most visible provocation, effectively, and, and it ends in violence. I mean, there's there's a, a Jewish-American man who, who rushes the stage and is, is beaten in front of this, this crowd. So... Mm. Uh, you know, the, the Boone is the most visible organization trying to emulate, um, and, and Kuhn does go off in 1936 and meets Hitler during the Olympics, and there's this sort of grainy photo that's, that's run of, of these two men shaking hands. Um, what's interesting about the Boone, though, is that the German government itself, especially the foreign ministry, did not really embrace it. Um, they were actually quite concerned that the Boone's obvious provocations might lead to, um, you know, giving Roosevelt an excuse to, to take action against Germany. Uh, and so at various points, the German foreign ministry uh, threatened German citizens that were members of the Bund uh, with revocation of their passports. They um, sort of told Kuhn uh, privately to try to tone down some of his provocations, um, and, and Kuhn really just didn't listen. So you know, this, this very mm. visibly pro-Nazi pro group ironically did not enjoy much, much support from Germany. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I would have yeah, thought that yeah, they I would, think... but I guess they were just not supporting it, as you say, for tactical reasons because they didn't want the blowback, not because they didn't want let you know to cede their ideology in America. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right, and I, I think also you know the, the Nazis, especially the foreign ministry guys. I mean, they, they were they were pretty smart guys, right? I mean, unfortunately, right? I mean, they they were professional diplomats. Many of them were holdovers from um, even the the World War One period. So, I mean, these guys sort of had a pretty good read on the United States. The, the Nazi Party itself did not have a very good read on the U.S. I mean, this is one point I, I tried to make in the introduction, but, I mean, Hitler, you know, if you think about it, it never visits the U.S., which is kind of an obvious thing to say, but, you know, he has very little knowledge beyond, you know, it's a powerful country industrially, and he, li he likes Henry Ford and the Ku Klux Klan, and that's about all he knows about. Hmm. So, you know, these guys are not exactly playing, uh, you know, the guys in the party are not exactly playing chess here. They're more like, more playing checkers. Hmm. 
but the, the foreign ministry guys, I mean, you see this over and over again where they say, you know, let's not get too close to these groups like the Bund. Let's not do anything that could potentially be exposed and, and discredit them because these guys, in the Boone's case, they're worried that they might, you know, create a war. Um, Some like Father Coughlin's case, I'm, I'm sure you want to talk about later on. I mean, they, they think about supporting Coughlin in some way, but they're afraid that would discredit him if that's mm. exposed. Gotcha. So the foreign ministry is fairly clever at trying to hold their play their cards pretty close to their chest. Um, so, so the Bund is a big deal. Um, the Silver Legion is another one. I know you've got that on on your intro piece. Uh, the, the Legion, um, the, the German government does it seems provide some support for the Legion. It's not quite clear what that is. Um, I've never been able to establish whether it's financial or simply um, trying to help help them organize or things like that. But yeah. but the Legion is fascinating because it's founded by this Hollywood screenwriter, who I know you've talked about, but William Dudley Pelly, who fairly successful screenwriter um, in the yeah. silent film era. Then, interestingly, and this is one part you might want to dig into, um, becomes a spiritual medium. So he sort of, in the 1910s and 20s, builds up this practice of um, the channeling spirits uh, in New York City. And um, interestingly, later on, after after the war, begins writing um, sort of in the UFOlogy vein. So one of his um, earliest post-war books talks about him communicating with these spirits that later on UFOlogists claim are actually aliens. So this is the guy who actually has kind of a lasting influence um, in fringe movements to the present day. But uh, in this period, his interest is really in, in politics, and so he founds the Legion as, a, as supposedly because Jesus has told him to in a seance um, and uh, creates this nationwide group largely concentrated in, in Asheville, North Carolina, and in um, actually the Seattle region, interestingly, with some branches in California as well. Um, it, it really, in many ways, is openly violent. I mean, what's remarkable about Pelly is that he tells his supporters to stockpile ammunition for a coming racial war. Um, they are open about the fact that they are anticipating overthrowing the government. I mean, you know, in the Boone's case, there's sort of these whispers of, you know, perhaps we're going to be the Nazi party of the future, the, the vanguard of the party type idea. Um, in Pelly's case, I mean, he, he openly wants to overthrow the government. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear what he wants to do. Um, and so, you know, throughout the 19, late 1930s, Pelly is sort of and his supporters are roaming the country. Um, often getting chased out of town by World War One veterans in the American Legion and, and things like that, but really openly defying law enforcement to do anything about their open carrying of weapons and their provocative rhetoric. Um, and as, as with um, you know Fritz Kuhn, Pelly ends up going to going to prison for financial crimes. Uh, but in the in the late 1930s, he's seen as a a really serious national security threat. I mean, you can imagine. It'd be sort of, you know, it's very reminiscent, I think, of the militia movement today. I, I don't know to what extent there's a direct intellectual lineage there, but I mean, imagine groups, you know, organizing into these um, cells of, of armed individuals that train with the explicit mission of overthrowing the government someday. I mean, it's pretty bizarre. Hmm. I wasn't aware that he felt inspired by Jesus. That I was, I was aware of some of the occult stuff, and I was wondering actually if that was directly related to the Nazi occultism or if it was a sort of a different thing of its own. But I had, I had not, I had not read about him feeling that he was inspired by Christ to be a Nazi. <laughs> That's pretty. Oh yeah. No, I have, I have that in my chapter. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, he, he claims, I mean, supposedly he's creating what he calls a Christian Commonwealth, right? I mean, that's his, his model government, um, which includes, you know, right. forcing Jews into ghettos and having a secretary of Jewry to, <laughs> to oversee that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's listen, you know, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily related to the Nazi occult. I think there's actually a more interesting connection there to just general spiritualism in the 1910s and 20s when it was very popular, right? And, you know, we often look at that as kind of a, you know, like people like Arthur Conan Doyle, right, were very much into spiritualism, thought it was real. Um, you know, you can imagine how that could be abused pretty, pretty dramatically by somebody like Pelley. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I had read about the Christian Commonwealth, that the interesting idea for this Nazi theocratic state. Speaking of which, actually, that moves us right into Chapter yeah. 3, and yeah. the religious right and the radio priest himself and, and yes. all of that. Uh, please uh, talk about that for a minute. Well, you know, I, I think, and I've, I've said this in various interviews, and I think I say in the book as well, I, I think Father Coughlin probably the most influential media figure of the 20th century. Um, you know, this is a man who, who enjoyed an audience larger than really, in some ways, any other media figure in a country that was much smaller. I mean, now, certainly you can make comparisons with, you know, the influence of a 
a journalist like a Walter Cronkite or something like that, right? But but Cogman's not really representing himself as as a journalistic figure. He's representing himself as a spiritual leader. Um, and so Coughlin, you know, comes to the airwaves in the 1920s as this this Catholic priest from Royal Oak, initially trying to um, present Catholicism to a wider audience and, and humanize it, because this is a period, unfortunately, in which there was a great deal of anti anti Catholic prejudice, especially in, in that part of the country. So, so Coughlin's initial idea was to use this new technology of radio to sort of humanize uh, his congregation and his faith to the to the wider world. But then when the Great Depression comes around, um, turns very quickly to politics. So endorses Roosevelt in 32, campaigns for him, and, and actually apparently anticipates receiving a cabinet-level position um, in the Roosevelt administration. Um, that doesn't happen. And, and at that time, then uh, Coughlin begins turning against the administration. Now, part of that turn um, comes from Coughlin's growing interest in, in economics. So Coughlin sort of concludes it's not entirely clear how that the solution to the great depression is to devalue the the u.s dollar so to take it off the gold standard um and essentially go to a, a bimetallism system where silver would also be backing the dollar which would would significantly devalue the dollar um but also help people um especially people in the midwest pay off their debts more quickly because the dollar would be would be worth less um, so Coughlin sort of, and this is, we shouldn't say that like he's the only one with this idea. This was an idea that was being thrown around by quite a few people in that period. Uh, but Coughlin embraces this, and when Roosevelt refuses to devalue the dollar, um, Coughlin very rapidly, I think, goes down this anti-Semitic um, conspiracy theory road. You know, why would Roosevelt not devalue the dollar? Why would he not take it off the gold standard? Well, it must be because of the banks. And when you go down the road of it, it must be because of the banks. Uh, it's not a, a stone throw away in classic anti-Semitism to, to start talking about you know who supposedly owns the banks and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So by 37-38, Coughlin has, has gone down that road, um, mm -hmm. and that's obviously taken him into an ideological um, alignment with Nazi Germany. And he starts saying some pretty horrendous things. I mean, blaming Jews for, for Stalnacht in Germany. Um, essentially saying that the U.S. and Germany should should have no political differences effectively and that those differences have been artificially created. Um, and, and really, in, we should mention 1936, I mean, Coughlin runs a candidate, a third-party candidate against Roosevelt, who receives almost almost no votes. Um, but, you know, this is a man who has gone within a decade from a, you know, regional spiritual leader mm. to a national media figure and a man who is trying to run candidates for president against the guy he supported in the last election. So you know, it's, a, it's a pretty rapid transition. Um, but I think what makes Coughlin, you know, especially uh, in some ways dangerous, is, is this combination of spiritual power, this, this authority he had as a, as a priest, um, combined with this sort of extremist political view that he, he rapidly goes down the rabbit hole of, of presenting. Um, and, you know, eventually the, the Catholic Church steps in and removes him from the airwaves. Um, essentially silences him using the authority of the church. But there, Coughlin does give interviews at the end of his life where he seems unapologetic for this and, and makes claims like like that the U.S. should still not have entered World War II um, and that communism was really the winner of, of that intervention. So, um, you know, one, one thing I always tell people is, you know, Cog, Coughlin, I think, is one of the first multimedia celebrities, really, the 20th century. You know, he, he capitalizes on new technology, radio, but he also has a, a newspaper that's distributed on street corners. He has he, he writes books. He kind of bridges the gap between old and new. And, and one can imagine how effective someone like that would be with modern technology, right? I mean, imagine Father Cog with Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, um, wow. you know, it, and any sort of traditional media forms as well. It's, it's kind of frightening. And so, what was the um, what was the U.S. government response to this? Not only to him, but just generally to these these movements in the United States and the, the sort of uh, Nazi-American <coughs> efforts? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, because initially it's, it's not much. Uh, so, so there's two, two factors that really lead to the U.S. government not taking a, a great deal of action here. Um, the first is that this is the pre-modern national security state. Um, after World War I, there was quite a bit of skepticism about uh, the role of law enforcement in policing um, people's speech effectively, or even doing things like uh, initiating wiretaps or um, things of that sort. And so after World War I, a lot of those 
law enforcement um, tools had been rolled back. Um, and there was no clear delineation of who had responsibility for things like counterintelligence, even to, to be more direct and you know, who was responsible for preventing espionage and things like that. Um, today, it's the FBI, but back then, the FBI didn't have that role assigned to it. Uh, it was actually the, it was actually the Navy. So the Office of Naval Intelligence was policing a lot of um, actual espionage. But when it came to influence operations, the FBI kind of threw up its hands and said, you know, we're not sure what we're supposed to do here, whether this is really in our in our wheelhouse at all. Um, the other factor there is that J. Edgar Hoover uh, and much of the FBI brass was much more interested in communist subversion. Um, so, you know, Hoover had really had been the director of the FBI during the, um, I think it was actually technically the precursor of the FBI, um, during the Palmer raids of a few years, not really not that long before. Um, and he remained interested in, in rooting out communist subversion of the labor movement um, and of, of the left more generally. So this left him somewhat blind, I think, to, to the threats coming from the right. Um, you know, Franklin Roosevelt actually had to encourage or even order uh, the FBI on a couple of occasions to open investigations into groups like the Boone. Um, but when those investigations were opened, and, and we certainly have all of those, most of those files we think open now, they don't really find much. I mean, if you think about what the Boone is doing, I mean, you know, they're, they're saying very nasty things, but that's protected by the First Amendment. Um, a lot of the, the sort of weapons training the Boone was doing, at least, was protected by the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, they would have you know, shooting contests on their on private land and things like that. Not much you can do. Um, eventually, what does bring down a lot of these groups, though, is is the financial corruption side. So, so Fritz Kuhn uh, eventually is indicted for embezzlement and fraud um, because the Boone's books have been cooked. It appears uh, he's been taking he's been skimming off the top. Um, you know, Pelly goes to prison for um, defrauding investors in one of his publication, uh, very, actually a spiritualist publication, going back to that theme, uh, where he apparently had taken some money from that to, to put it into the, mm. the Legion in its early days. Um, so the financial sort of side of this is, is important. And, and then when, when the war starts, of course, you know, that changes the game dramatically. I mean, when, when actually Germany, when we declare war on Germany, um, after they declare war on us, um, now the government has the authority to actually um, confiscate these subversive publications, um, which leads to the Great Sedition Trial, uh, which ultimately is a fiasco. But, you know, I, I think in, in some ways it's a fascinating question because what do you do about this kind of stuff? I mean, this is kind of a, a question in some ways, um, not as dramatically, but, but for our present day where, you know, we certainly see influence operations on the Internet all the time reaching Americans. And, you know, there's not necessarily much you can do from a law enforcement perspective. Sure. Um, and at the same time that you had these individuals in the government not really having the means to do much about it, uh, let's transition to talking about um, corporate interests and what they were getting up to, yeah. people like General Motors or Coca-Cola, Ford, and so on, and uh, not only what they were doing, but um, it, what uh, what the government was thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we often forget is that you know, World War II happened in a pretty globalized world. Uh, you know, we, we, we often think of the world, I think, as being, um, you know, black and white up until the 1950s or something, and then suddenly it's, in, it's all in living color and, and it's the world we recognize today. But, but actually, by the 1920s, I mean, the world was fairly globalized. And after World War I, Germany was seen as a very viable investment market and actually a very good market for a lot of American corporations because the, the mark was so, so devalued. And so there was almost a gold rush, as I describe it in the book, during this period of, of American firms getting involved in Germany. So General Motors ends up buying Opel, which was a, a German car company and makes it a subsidiary of, uh, of General Motors. Mm. Ford has actually been involved in a bidding war over Opel. Um, they lose that war and then they get involved and they, they open their own plant in Cologne, uh, building trucks, initially cars, eventually it pivots to trucks after after Hitler um, mandates the creation of the, the people's automobile, the Volkswagen, um, which Ford had actually bid on the contract to, to make and, and was denied by Hitler. Uh, so, so you've got two, you know, America's two big automakers really in the German market by, by the time Hitler takes power. And, you know, I, I always try to get my audiences to think about this, but, I mean, put yourself in, in these companies' positions, right? I mean, you've got millions of dollars in these markets, um, and the government there is asking, starting to ask you to do things that you're uncomfortable with. I mean, one of the 
one of the mandates is that you have to remove um, Jewish directors from the board of directors. That's how it starts. And then eventually it transitions to removing all of your Jewish employees entirely, right? Um, and, you know, we wish, that it, we, we wish that we would all have the courage to at that point say, you know, we're just going to take the loss and get out of this market. But, but these businessmen didn't, unfortunately. And so as time goes on, you know, this gets more and more politicized. Um, and eventually both Ford and General Motors end up producing aircraft engines for the Luftwaffe um, during the war using slave labor. Now, that's not their choice. At that point, the government has essentially nationalized those production facilities. But, you know, World War II might have been different had in 1934 or 35, General Motors and Ford said, you know, we're just not comfortable doing business here. We're going to take the loss and shut down our factory. You know, and maybe they would have been nationalized anyway, but we'll, we'll never know. So we have that sort of factor. Um, you know, IBM is also involved in the German market. They actually have a subsidiary that um, makes the punch cards that do the German census, which provides the German government, of course, then with the uh, much of the information that they need to to commit the Holocaust later on. And in fact, when the Germans begin conquering Europe, they um, they are very interested in census data that tells them about the populations that they will want to target. So we have another American corporation that's at least indirectly involved in, in this. Um, and then the one that I always find entertaining is, is Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola is a little bit different in that it was it was brought into the German market um, by by an entrepreneur who was you know buying the buying the raw materials from the U.S., shipping it over, and manufacturing Coke in Germany. Um, and Coke became very popular. And in fact, the the Nazi regime. Um, in, didn't directly promote Coke, but encouraged Coke drinking because it was not it was non-alcoholic. And of course, if you're manufacturing large amounts of armaments, you'd probably rather have your people drinking caffeine than uh, you know beer on their lunch break. Hmm. So, um, so Coke actually expanded pretty rapidly in Germany. And there's a great story I quote in the book that, that during the war, um, there's a group of POWs um, who are being brought through. I think it's New York Harbor, um, who see a Coca-Cola billboard and are amazed that they have Coke in America because they thought it was a German drink. Oh, wow. So, you know, you, yeah. you, you have you have these American brands and, and, you know, the oil industry is involved as well. I mean, there are stories that, um, you know, associations, standard oil stations were the only stations with gasoline still at the end of the war when the GIs derived. Um, we, there are sketchier businessmen, William Rhodes Davis being one, who are actually, um, you know, smuggling oil to the Nazis. So, you know, this cuts across the board. German, Germany was a, seen as a viable market for a lot of businesses. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of examples um, that I can think of of, of American companies, in fact, not any actually, of American major American companies that just pulled out of Nazi Germany and took the losses. Did, um, one thing to note there incidentally is that you, you, you could not just divest from Germany. They would, mm. they would lock in your money. So you couldn't, you couldn't just shut down your operations and take the cash. You'd actually have to take a loss. Didn't, uh, didn't the U.S. Uh, put an embargo on Coca-Cola products and then Germany switched to Fanta? Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, I don't think it's a formal embargo. I think it's just during the war they couldn't ship it in anymore. Oh, okay. But they'd, they'd, they'd stockpiled quite a bit of the, um, the syrup for it, so they were able to make it a couple of years. But, yeah, yeah, Fant that's, that's, that's the, uh, the funny story is that Fanta was actually designed by the Nazis as a replacement for Coke, or designed by the, in the Nazi period, we should say. Yeah, that always – because I grew up uh, in the Bahamas, and Coke is there, but it's not <laughs> – it's not the drink. I mean, the drink that most, the soda that most people drink is either a local thing or it's, or it's Fanta. It's Fanta. I grew up with Fanta as the main soda, and it wasn't until I was, I guess, in high school or, or even later that I learned that it was a Nazi soda, essentially, or at least that that was its origin story. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, apparently GIs and, and Brit I mean, that's probably British influence in the Bahamas, but apparently they discovered that when they went, when they occupied Germany after the war, and they're like, oh, it's a pretty good drink, actually. So <laughs> it inadvertently <laughs> went the other way. Interesting. Um, okay, at, at, uh, so all these factors are building up, and these, you know, uh, but then at a certain point you, you, you say that there was this, um, uh, you call it the final moment of truth for Hitler's American friends, which is the founding of America's yeah. first committee. Uh, yeah. and America first. Um, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, America first, I, I do call is, is the final reckoning. And, you know, it, this is where we have to be a little bit cautious, I think, because America first was, you know, a, a in many ways, a valid and, um, you know, well, in some ways, well-meaning political movement. I mean, 800,000 members, um, you know, many elected officials were involved in it. Many people who had, or many um, gold star mothers from World War One were involved in it, um, and, and I, I am reluctant to paint everyone with the same brush here, and, and you know say that these were all Nazi stooges or something like that. 
Um, there, there are many Americans who were involved in it who, who genuinely thought the U.S. should stay out of World War II and that uh, the Roosevelt administration was, was overstepping in its domestic policies, which was essentially the two planks of its platform. But that said, I mean, America First does attract uh, a number of very questionable people, and, and they, they know it at the time, too. Um, you know, and you can imagine if you are a Boond member who is deeply disappointed that Fritz Kuhn is now in jail, uh, or you're a Silver Legion member who really wants the Nazis to invade so you can have your race war, um, you know, a big nationwide prominent organization that says, you know, we shouldn't get involved in Hitler's war in Europe and has a, a number of celebrities in it, it could be very appealing. And that's exactly what happens is that America First really explodes actually out of Yale Law School after the 1940 election. Um, gets a big boost when Charles Lindbergh, uh, arguably the most famous man in the world in some ways, um, becomes its its big stump speaker. Um, and it begins sort of spreading this message of, of non-interventionism and, and indeed sort of dangling the carrot of, of favorable U.S.-German relations. Um, and I think a lot of this is driven, you know, the America First archive is quite interesting because you see multiple perspectives in there. You see the the elite leadership perspective, a lot of businessmen were involved in it. Um, ironically, businessmen who make a lot of money out of World War II, but uh, very opposed to entry in this period. Um, you know, and they're talking about this in a very elite way of, you know, if we go to war, then Roosevelt will become a dictator. We will lose all of our liberties as Americans. I mean, arguments that are, are based out of principle. Um, and then you see sort of the Lindbergh wing of it, which and, and Lindbergh had spent time in Germany, we should note. The Lindbergh wing is effectively like, yeah, we don't have any fight with the Germans. The Germans might be just fine. And then these sort of, you know, nods to anti-Semitism, which, which in Lindbergh's case become more than nods um, by late 1941. And then you have the rank and file. And, and the rank and file, you have some pretty deep-seated anti-Semitism there. I mean, you, there are letters that I've seen in the archive where, you know, average people are, are writing to the American First Committee and saying, you know, Colonel Lindbergh is right. You know, it's the Jews that are leading us into the war and things like that. So, you know, it, it's a movement like I'm sure any political movement to some extent where you have a big disconnect between perhaps the ideals of the leadership or the, the goals of the initial leadership and, and what people who are actually the, the um, rank and file believe. Um, and, you know, I, I call them the, the final act for Hitler's American friends because whether they want to be or not or whether they intend to be or not, people are supporting Nazi geopolitical aims. I mean, keeping the U.S. out of World War II you know, as late as, as 1941, I mean, all you're really doing is, is hurting the Allies and helping helping Germany. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there's a counterfactual that can be made where, you know, if America first never existed, do we go into World War II earlier? I, I, don't, I don't think it's that simple, right? But, but they did, you know, create a, an environment where it was very difficult for Roosevelt to they, – they tied Roosevelt's hands, let's put it that way. Um, and, you know, had that, had that organization not existed, would the Senate have been less isolationist? Probably not, but there would have been less pressure, at least on Roosevelt. So, you know, and, and it's undeniable, incidentally, that, that extremists flooded America first ranks. I mean, you've got former Boone members, you've got Silver Legion members, you even have German agents. I mean, there's, there's now documents that have come out where, um, you know, German diplomats are telling their paid agents to, to uh, help the America first committee because it's the best thing they can do for the cause. So this is a group that becomes essentially a catch-all for extremism. And again, you know, I think it's, it's an important lesson because, you know, again, many Americans did genuinely believe this. I, I think much of the leadership of America First was probably well-intended and, and, you know, probably not terribly pro-Nazi. Some of them probably – some of them definitely were. But, you know, I think it, it's a, a cautionary tale of, you know, when you create a movement of that size, it's, it's really important to know not only what the rank and file think but keep a, a firm hold on its direction. And uh, your expertise background is in is in uh, media and journalism. I'm curious, what do you what are your thoughts on like how was the media? What was their role in this? Were they covering it, uh, you know, responsibly? Or was there uh, a serious slant? How did the media? How did the American media portray Nazism and its followers during the 1930s, essentially? Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a really great question. Um, well, you know, there's been there's quite a bit of research coming out on this now, actually. Um, but, you know, there, there's a couple of big things that have emerged. I mean, firstly, this is an era where essentially all media is partisan, right? I mean, the, the idea that you would have – I think we might be going back to this now, or at least in people's perceptions. But the idea of objective media 
it doesn't really exist in the modern way. I mean, you have, you have columnists like Drew Pearson, who is nationally syndicated, who clearly is putting his fingers on the scale for Roosevelt and for uh, for the Democratic Party. You have people like Walter Winchell, who clearly are pro-British, right, and publishing stuff being fed to them by uh, British intelligence, actually, in both those guys' cases. Um, and, and you have newspapers that have very clear editorial stances. I mean, especially in, in the Chicago region, you have, you have a ton of isolationist newspapers. Mm. Uh, you have isolationist-leaning magazines, right? I mean, everyone sort of knows um, that the news source that they're consuming is, is politically slanted to some extent. But th- that said, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, actually American journalism did very well in this period. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the boon, the first real attempt to expose that was by a journalist, a man named John C. Metcalf, who had actually infiltrated the boon um, and ran a very um, compelling expose of what he had learned there. And is it sensationalistic? Sure. But he was still exposing, um, you know, a, a quite serious national security threat in that venue. And that, of course, then gave license to other journalists to, to follow that lead. Mm. So I think in, in the, sort of the domestic security space, um, you know, certain journalists, certain newspapers did did pretty well in this period. Where we know that they did not do as well was on reporting what was actually happening in Germany. And so partially this this is the, the recent research that's come out from people like Susan Olmsted that, um, you know, American journalists, especially foreign correspondents, knew a great deal about the what was happening to Germany and later on Europe's Jewish population and simply didn't report it. Um, and partially that was due to the, the regime censorship um, and the fact they wanted to maintain access and, and not be expelled from the country in a lot of cases. Um, but also because there was this fear among the um, journalistic elite that if you talk too much about what was happening to the Jews, it would be seen as a, a Jewish war after the U.S. gets into the conflict and that that would be negative for American morale. So, you know, you have this sort of tragic combination of um, American media elites, especially um, foreign correspondents, wanting to ma- maintain their access. Uh, and after we get into the war, sort of the newspaper elite here, um, you know, wanting to, um, you know, maintain morale and therefore not talking about what they knew was happening to, to Europe's Jews. It really becomes tragic. And, and you know, I think, um, there, again, there's, this is an active area of research, but I don't think we still have a very clear sense of what the American public thought about the Holocaust in, in real time. Um, you know, we may never have that, but, but we know that Americans, we now know because of digitization, the Americans knew far more about it than was traditionally thought. And um, but on the other hand, I mean, media elites didn't nearly do enough in that regard. See. And what was the what, what were some of the reasons for uh, the Chicago area media's preference for isolationism? Yeah, no, great question. So, so Chicago was the headquarters of for America first as well. Um, it, it's just an isolationist part of the country. You know, the Upper Midwest has always been sort of the seat of isolationism. Um, you know, and there's a bunch of reasons for that um, that people have suggested. Large German American population up there in this period, mm, so okay. you know, not a great deal of enthusiasm for. Um, war against Germany. And in fact, after the war starts, Roosevelt, uh, between the 40 and 44 election, actually loses support um, in heavily German-American states, which is fairly interesting. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it, the Midwest is, is always an isolationist. You know, it's, it's just, it's a facet of American history. Kind mm-hmm. of interesting. Um, okay. And so are there, are there any, uh, just generally speaking, looking at this period in time and this subject, are there any um, you, you mentioned just now about the, uh, the way that we often think that Americans didn't know at the time as much about the Holocaust that maybe they actually did know. So there's a bit of a misconception yeah. there that we're only just now starting to realize. Uh, are, are there any other misconceptions about uh, in this time period under this subject that, that, uh, that you think are salient? Well, I think the big one is, is the misconception that I think most Americans probably have today that it was inevitable we were going to enter the war and inevitable that we were going to join the side of the allies, right? I mean, and, and, we, and maybe the third one is that we were going to win, <laughs> right? Hmm. Um, but, but I think none of those are actually true. I mean, you know, if you look at U.S. public opinion as late as the fall of 1941, you know, Americans at that point increasingly think that it's inevitable we're going to get into the war, but still don't want it. Hmm. Um, and, and here's one weird counterfactual. Um, you know, after Pearl Harbor, we don't declare war on Germany. The initial declaration of war was only against Japan. Uh, Roosevelt did not know whether he had the support to go to war against Germany, and then Hitler forced his hand and went to war with us first. So the counterfactual there is what if Hitler hadn't declared war on us? Would Roosevelt have ever had the votes to go to war against Germany because Germany had not attacked us? 
I don't know. Wow. So, you know, but yeah, there was no inevitability there at all. You know, now, you know, do I think that we would have allied with the Nazis? Well, maybe under President Charles Lindbergh, you know, <laughs> if, if we if we don't declare war, Lindbergh gets elected in 44 or something. And at that point, Britain is defeated and, you know, Hitler's only at war in the Soviet Union. I don't know. I don't know at that point. Um, but yeah, there was no inevitability of us going into World War II, hmm. no inevitability that we would necessarily join the Allies. Um, had things, you know, obviously as it turned out, we were always going to join the Allies, but, you know, had Pearl Harbor not happened or something, right? You know, maybe we didn't. Um, and there was no inevitability even after that that we were going to win the war. I mean, the first couple of years of U.S. in the World War II is pretty bad. You know, we're mostly fighting in the Pacific. Um, we don't even really start going into Europe for a couple of years. And, and Stalin, our allies, really upset at this. He keeps demanding the second front, and, and uh, Roosevelt and Churchill keep saying no. Um, now, when, when, by the time D-Day comes along, right, then the writing is on the wall. But that's not until June of 44. So, you know, imagine this period in 42, 43, where almost all the war news is, is bad coming from Europe and, you know, kind of mixed coming from the Pacific. And what are the what are the uh, the leading academic theories with regard to the delay? Was it just that, as you say, uh, he didn't have the support, and he was waiting to see that he did, and he was waiting for Hitler to make the move first, or um, we were just focused on the Pacific? We had different. What was the what was the reason there? It, the delay in the declaration of war. Yeah, against yeah, going into Europe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I, it's, Roosevelt doesn't know whether he has the support, doesn't yeah, know whether okay. the votes are there, among the isolationists. And, it's, it, and I think it's also, you know, how do you justify it, right? Yeah. I mean, Germany hasn't attacked us. You know, and J Japan has certainly attacked us, right? But there's no, uh, you know, there's, there's still this, you know, keep in mind that we, this is crazy to think about, but during the 1930s, we routinely passed neutrality acts, right? I mean, like, like federal law was that we were going to be neutral and not even sell weapons to, to our enemies. And Roosevelt had to find clever workarounds to even give weapons and ships to the British, you know, before we entered the war. But, yeah, there, I, I don't think there was any guarantee at all that Roosevelt had the votes there. It would be fascinating if, if somebody, you know, this would be the, sort of the gold standard archival find is if, you know, one of the party whips or something had, had pulled senators on, you know, a declaration of war against Japan on, like, December 8th or 9th or something, right? Like, how many votes would there have been? I don't know. That is interesting to think about. Um, yeah. But the but the public sentiment would not have been because when I read about this, sometimes you know you hear this uh, this idea that like you know one counterfactual is if these movements in America would have achieved a greater level of power. Listening to you yeah. and reading your book, it sounds as if that was never really in the cards. We were never really going to go that far, but we probably were on the on the very cusp of just being isolationist and doing nothing at all and and then who knows how far at that point these these influences would have grown if say nazi germany had been allowed to cement its its power in europe and then sit there for a while and continue its influence campaigns and uh, you know who knows where america would have gone from there but at the time anyway it didn't seem like americans were um generally speaking pro nazi just pro isolationist yeah no i think that's completely correct and that's exactly the counterfactual that i i sort of trying to try to weave for all the audiences that I talk to is, you know, don't, don't imagine, you know, the Bund is going to, you know, seize control of the White House or something. And that, that's kind of crazy talk, right? But yeah, imagine a world in which, you know, we don't get in, let's just say Pearl Harbor doesn't happen, right? You know, we don't get involved in the war. Germany does in fact defeat Britain and now they go into the Soviet Union and, you know, they're fighting our historic enemy in a lot of cases, right? I mean, there's no alliance between the U.S. and the USSR. Um, and let's say by 1944, they've seized Moscow, you know, Roosevelt goes out of office because his foreign policy has failed, um, and the Depression is still biting Americans, and Germany looks very successful. So you elect, you know, Charles Lindbergh, and, and now you've got conditions in which exactly what you described could happen. You've got America sitting out, cutting a deal with the Nazis. Um, you know, the Holocaust is, is probably is going on, right, And but it's not being reported in the U.S., and so that's, that's where you get into the weird, you know, not quite man in the high castle counterfactuals, right? I mean, I, I actually, I, mean, I get asked this all the time, you know, did Germany want to invade the United States? I mean, maybe in the long term. I, I don't think so, though. But I do think the, you know, man in the high castle is interesting because it's, it's sort of homegrown Nazis to some extent, right? Hmm. And that's a scenario that I don't think is outlandish, where if you end up in a, an alliance or a, a deal being made with a, you know, successful-looking Nazi Germany, 
then these extremist groups do get to, you know, toot their horn and, uh, you know, possibly start running for office and things like that. It's, it's, it's kind of chills the blood to think about that. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't remember who it was who said it, but um, <clears throat> somebody once said that history is really kind of like a series of teacups balancing on top of teacups. And, you know, any, any individual one of them tipped slightly in a different direction, uh, everything everything falls from the way that you thought that it stood and it and this is you know sounds as if america was at one of those moments where it could have just so easily gone the other way if just one thing was different and we would be sitting in an entirely different uh, we would conceivably be sitting in an entirely different nation right now um yeah well the, the other i mean this is the man in the high castle scenario but exactly. in, in that <laughs> counterfactual i mean roosevelt gets assassinated right which actually almost did happen I mean, that's based on, I think it was in Miami where, uh, right before he's sworn in, there was a guy who took a shot at him and, and it hit the guy next to him, right? And so had Roosevelt been killed before he was sworn into office, I mean, could any other politician have survived in that environment? I mean, Roosevelt was a remarkable president. Hmm. Wow. Uh, okay, well, putting aside the counterfactuals of where we <laughs> – of where, of where we – where we could be now, let's talk about where we actually are now and the yeah. legacy of this period and how that influences the conversations that we have about extremist ideologies in America today, which is, a, you know, as fascinating as history is, I think the way that it relates to the things that we're going through now are also, you know, lessons to be learned and such. Yeah. Um, so what are your thoughts on uh, on sort of the, the, the main, um, I guess... The lessons, you know, the things that, that when we're looking at these these uh, extremist ideologies today, what are the, what are the things that you come away with as sort of the, um, the historical lessons? Yeah, no, it's, it's, and I get this question all the time. Yeah, well, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think the first one is that, that we have to realize that our democracy is, is actually fairly fragile. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm of a I'm from the Cold War, the last of the Cold War generation, right? I mean, I grew up in a, an America that was that just won the Cold War when I was becoming a, a young person or a young adult. Um, you know, and, and, you know, prior to 9-11, certainly we thought that, you know, the world, it was the end of history, as Fukuyama, you know, famously wrote, right, that democracy had won, it was inevitably a march towards liberalism. You know, I, I think we have to acknowledge that, that that's not the case, right? I mean, uh, unfortunately, the temptation of extremism, the temptation of, of dictatorship um, and totalitarianism is, is ever-present in, in society. And, and I think we have, as we've lost the living memory of, of what we contended with in World War II, um, people are becoming tempted. Um, and what's remarkable to me as a historian is, is to see these same messages and, in fact, same materials in some cases being really laundered for a new generation. Um, one thing I've observed is you know, I've been working on this for a long time. Um, when I used to go out to, to Amazon and look at, you know, extremist literature from a long time ago, right, and, and sort of purchase reprints of these books or whatever, you'd very rarely even see, you know, reviews of them, right? I mean, who would read this stuff, right? I mean, I'm reading it for academic purposes. Over the past few years, you've started seeing reviews. People are actually picking this, and I don't think they're historians, judging from what they're writing, uh, but people saying, you know, these guys had it right back in the 30s, and, and that's that's deeply disturbing. Um, and I think, you know, that, that goes to my main point, which is, I think this, a lot of this is about education, um, you know, in, in my mind, at least as somebody who studied this stuff, I think fascism and natural socialism only go one place, and it's not a place that I think the vast majority of people want to go. But I think these messages can be unfortunately very tempting for people who don't know that history and don't see that connection and don't understand that national socialism is about extermination and warfare. That's that's it. I mean, that's 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 where that goes. It's about racial war, um, you know, and, and fascism is a little bit different ideologically, but. You know, it doesn't go good places either for, for a lot of people. So, you know, I think that's part of what I'm trying to do is educate people as to, you know, this is the real history here and this is this is where this stuff goes. And I think, you know, what we've seen is is through the Internet, people have been able to to spread this stuff um, without fear of social approbation. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, if you wanted to share, you know, national socialist propaganda, you would pay a social price for that unless you really – really knew the person you were talking to, in, in which case they probably agreed with you already, right? But these days you can spread this stuff anonymously, and, and you, you can spread it without fear necessarily of being being exposed or paying a social price for that, which allows people to to do it um, with a degree of impunity. Mm. And so yeah. what I hope is, you know, that, that going forward, I think, um, you know, educationally, I think we, we really need to integrate this history into, into the education process. You know, one thing I've found instantly, I, I don't know how closely you're tied into higher ed, but 
you know, even teaching World War II classes now is becoming rare. You know, and there's a shocking number of young people who don't know what Auschwitz was, don't even necessarily know who we fought in World War II. So, you know, that we, we can't lose that. You know, that, that's barely the edge of living memory, guys. Like, we can't lose all of this already. Mm. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've had conversations recently with people who, you, you, you mentioned Auschwitz, and yeah, I've recently had conversations with people who uh, barely have any idea what it was, or... Um, I've, I saw a, uh, a poll recently, um, uh, I think I may have actually posted it, uh, I'd have to go back and check, but, you know, they were asking things like, how many Jews, uh, in the Holocaust, or, you know, was it, yeah. uh, a hundred thousand, was it, uh, one million, was it six million, and, right. like, uh, over half of the Americans surveyed got it wrong, <laughs> right, and this is, right. I mean that of of all if if I just had a list of like twenty things or just even ten things to know numbers or statistics to know from World War Two I think that would be one of the ones uh, near, <laughs> near the top of my list. How many Jews in the Holocaust and and half of them half of the Americans surveyed would flunk and that's really right. that really speaks to these the sort of the urgency of of educating people better on these things and keeping the education and the information current. Um, yeah. Well, I think, the, and the other one is conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, we see the huge upswing in these things like QAnon, right? These things only go one way. I mean, I think, you know, De Deborah Lipschad, who's now our emissary on anti-Semitism, has made this point throughout her, her various writings, which are great, that, you know, every conspiracy theory in Western society to some extent, because of, of how Western society has grown, is, is some ways coming down to anti-Semitism, you know, and you look at what QAnon is preaching with people drinking the blood of children and shadowy figures, you know, pulling the strings from behind the curtain. I mean, that stuff can, you know, once you go down those rabbit holes, they often end up only in one place, right? And, and, that, and that is unfortunately anti-Semitism. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, combating these conspiracy theories, um, I, I think, is, is really critical. And, and, you know, one question I have never gotten a good answer to, maybe because there isn't one, is why suddenly do we have so many Americans that are interested in this stuff? Or, or has it really changed, right? I mean, maybe people always have been, but it seems like this stuff is getting more and more public play. And I wonder how much of that is the anonymity of the internet again and people just being bored. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I, well, I don't know. I, I think about that a lot myself. I think perhaps part of it is, um, part of it is uh, just the, uh, you know, maybe economic pressures that we're under um, recently since 2008 but um, yeah if nothing else it's a good reason for people to go out there and uh, and read Hitler's American friends and educate themselves <laughs> on the details of uh, of some of the history and it's definitely a fascinating read I, I'm I highly recommend it uh, not okay. not just for the history but also you know the the stories that you weave in there I mean it's not just educational it's fun to read fun i say fun but it's dark you know, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. you know I, I get i get that a lot and everyone says like i don't i don't really mean fun but it's a good read <laughs> yeah absolutely um on that note uh i thank you so much for your time and uh and for uh informative and fascinating answers to my questions and um uh i hope everyone will check out the book yeah no thank you and uh, yeah uh, send me a link to this when it goes online looking forward to seeing the series books we've got a lot of great stuff planned Absolutely, will do. Yeah, uh, this is uh, uh, this week. I've been focused on the 1930s. I intend to <coughs> hit every decade, uh, so hopefully that'll be yeah. that'll be interesting for people and maybe maybe add a little bit to the needed education on the subject. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Well, th thanks again for the time. This has been a lot of fun. Okay. Hey, have a great day. Take care. All right, you too. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.